Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Let's grab uh, our Bibles, if you will. You can uh, grab your own, or there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And let's turn to the Old Testament book of Judges. Old Testament book of Judges. So uh, turn to the front of your Bible. You got the first five books uh, of the Bible. And uh, as you make your way, then you'll find Joshua. And then you'll find Judges. The book of Judges, chapter 6, as we continue in our summer sermon series, simply entitled, No More Excuses. Taking a look at several of the best or worst, if you will, excuse givers in the scriptures, uh, we see yet another one here in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. I pray that you're there or close to it. And pray one more time, and then we'll dive into our sermon. So if you would pray with me again, please. Father, we pray that you would be with us now. That your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our lives. This is the word that you have inspired for us. It is altogether true and trustworthy. And Lord, you want us to learn something uh, about our own excuse giving through it. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that, that you would humble us, that you would uh, give us insights into our own, uh, our own lives, and that then we would become uh, less uh, excuse giving and more people that uh, take responsibility and then turn and live for you in obedience to your commands. And so, Father, we would pray for your grace and for your help this morning. We ask it uh, in the great name of Jesus, our King and our God and our Savior. And God's people said together, Amen. And uh, pray a prayer from my microphone that it doesn't do that all throughout the sermon. <laughs> so this morning we'll be in Gideon chapter, uh, uh, Ch- Judges chapter 6, taking a look at uh, a man by the name of, of Gideon. I want to begin, though, with a story. I want to tell you a story this morning of, uh, of a man that I think probably was an unlikely hero. I had never heard of him before, before I started to do some research. The man's name is Harold Lowe. You can see a picture of him uh, there behind me. Uh, As the story goes, uh, he turned out to be a hero, but he was an unlikely hero. In fact, many, uh, upon his birth and in his early life, would have considered him to be a a zero. In fact, when he was 14 years old, uh, he ran away from home. Uh, Not knowing what he wanted to do, he uh, signed up for the Navy. Uh, And then he spent a lot of time pretty much in obscurity. But eventually, he worked his way up to becoming, as you see on the screen, the fifth officer aboard the infamous... Titanic. Now, we all know the story there, right? As the Titanic sank that fateful night in 1912, of course, the majority of the ship's 20 life, we know from history, were uh, sparsely uh, populated, right? Many of them were less than half full. And as the story goes, only two of the lifeboats went back to the Titanic to look for rescuers. And of course, one of those boats was piloted by Harold Lowe. So as the story goes, he took the passengers that were on his lifeboat, he redistributed them to uh, other lifeboats, and he took a small crew of volunteers in in what really turned out to be an almost futile rescue attempt. Uh, As it it, it turns out, he and his few uh, crew kind of went back towards the wreckage. Um, As the account goes, that the water was so thick with bodies that had already drowned that for them to those that were alive, and they turned out to save just a precious few lives, uh, four to be exact, but I'm sure those four people that were rescued considered him to be a great hero. Uh, of course, he and his passengers that were rescued uh, were rescued the very next morning by the ship named Carpa- Carpathia. 
um, he will be remembered, I think, throughout history as, as one of the heroes of this great tragedy that we know to be the, the Titanic story. Continue in our sermon series this morning, uh, No More Excuses. We're going to see another hero. And this hero, like uh, Harold Lowe, turns out to be an, an unlikely hero indeed. You probably know who I'm talking about. I'm referring to the man by the name of Gideon. Now, unlike Mr. Lowe, who sprang into action immediately to deliver people who were in in peril, our hero, this unlikely hero by the name of Gideon, well, he didn't do uh, quite that. In fact, he took some, some coaxing to spring into action to save another people that were in peril, uh, of course, the nation of Israel. What we're going to see this morning from Gideon is that he's going to give a series of excuses to God as to why he cannot why he could be uh, God's, God's hero, the unlikely. The order of the text is pretty simple. Uh, we see in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6 of Judges that it begins with Israel's affliction. We're going to see that the Midianite people were uh, afflicting God's people and they needed to be delivered. Next, in verses 7 through 10, we'll look at God's admonition. Uh, God is going to send a prophet to rebuke his wayward people. And then the section that we'll focus most on is verses 11 through 24, where we see Gideon's argument. That is, Gideon is going to argue with God. What, what Mr. Lowe did, and that is save a people in peril. So let's uh, open the Bibles and take a look at Israel's affliction, starting verses 1 through 6. Let's take a look at verse 1 together. The Israelites did eat the eyes of the Lord. And for seven gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, if you're familiar with the story of that we see in verse 1, are really part of a, a repeated pattern that we see in the scripture goes something like this. God's people fall into idolatry. They have all sorts of evil, and so to uh, discipline them, to get their attention, it them over to a series of foreign countries, of oppressors. oppressed for a, a period of time, and they cry out to God for help. And what God does is he raises up for them a deliverer. And God, through that judge, through that deliverer, his people. But how do they respond to that? Even more than the time before. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a museum or a theme park. I'll describe it to you, and then I'll show you a about, but it's it's a so to speak. It's kind of a funnel, and it's, it's fun to do. You put like a quarter on top of that funnel, and then it begins to roll. If you know what I'm talking about, it begins to roll, and at the top it rolls all the way around, and it's very slow and and it begins to roll. But what happens as it makes its way down the funnel? It gets faster and faster, right? And so it goes faster and faster until it gets to the very bottom, and it's spinning very shortly. Doug, here in a minute, we're going to play a video. I'm going to let you deal with this. So, one minute, we'll get through this illustration, we'll get the video, and we'll do the story. The point of the video is, is simply this. This that we see in Judges is kind of like that. Uh, the people of Israel started down the spiral of sin, and they kind of started out slowly. And as the years went by, it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. 
So let's show this video, and hopefully we'll get this fixed. give this a go. If it starts crackling, got a backup plan right here. So this is kind of the downward spiral that God's people were on. Uh, They sinned, they rebelled, God saved them, God raised up a deliverer each time, and then they went into even deeper sin and idolatry. And so what we see as we come to Judges chapter 6 is that we are on the fifth cycle of this. God's people, uh, four times before, went into sin, God uh, God saved them, and then they went into even deeper sin. And so in verse 1, they did evil in the the eyes of the Lord. So for seven years, he gave them into a hand of a foreign oppressor, the the Midianites. So they're all the way, they're kind of halfway down the spiral, if you will. So what we see in verses 2 through 6 then is a description of the oppression that God allowed his people to go through. He wanted them to to pay attention to their sin and their idolatry. We also see this predictable cry from God's people for help. Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever they planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents, like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that the Lord for help. So what we see here is a group called uh, the Midianites. They were nomads that would raid other countries and ravage both the the agriculture and the livestock. And we see that happening to God's people here. And it's ironic, right? Because God's people who had been given this land, the promised land, they actually ended up, because of this oppression, living like nomads. And the nomads who were invading the land, they made themselves right at home. And so we see this predictable response, right? God's people, after seven years of being oppressed, finally decide, friends, make no mistake, this is not a cry of repentance. This is a cry for a deliverer. God had done it four times before. They expected it. And so they cry out, God, give us a deliverer. The great British pastor and theologian, Charles Spurgeon, he said of this text, quote, not permit his children to sin successfully. 
And that's what we see happening here. God would not let his people go in sin and in folly. And so he allowed these Midianite raiders to come and to ravage the land. Now, what we expect to happen, if we're familiar with with the book of Judges, it's happened in each of the previous four cycles. We are expecting, right, the people cry out to God what we expect God to do. Each of the four times, God raised up a deliverer for his people. And so we're expecting that, right? The text has sort of programmed us to do this. But instead of giving them a rescuer, God gives his people a rebuke. In verses 7 through 11, showing us that Israel was pretty far down this rabbit hole. So we move from Israel's affliction to God's admonition, starting in verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but but you have not listened to me. So we expect from the cycle God's people to cry out and God to give them a deliverer. But instead, he sends them somebody completely opposite of what they wanted and what they expected. But friends, was this what they needed? Absolutely. They needed not a deliverer. They needed a word from the Lord. They needed to repent, right? The fact that this unnamed prophet comes before the judge for them is indicative they were in a very deep and dark spiritual place. The prophet rebukes the people for, for here in the NIV, for worshiping the gods of the Amorites. But, but more literally, the text says that they feared the gods of the Amorites. Now, isn't that ironic? Because what type of a state were they living in now? See, they did not fear God. They decided to fear pagan deities, and what was the result? They were then living, as a consequence, in a perpetual state of fear, right? Krell's comments here, I think, are helpful in God sending a prophet rather than a military deliverer. He says, he says this, he says, this is akin to a stranded motorist calling a garage for assistance, and the garage sending a philosopher instead of a mechanic. That's exactly what's going on here. He goes on to say, Israel needs deliverance, and the Lord sends a prophet. Israel asks God for an act of his mighty power, and he sends them a preacher who rehearses God's grace to them and repeats his demands upon them. He says the Lord sends a prophet because Israel needs more than immediate relief. They need to understand why they are being oppressed. They didn't even understand why they were being oppressed. So God sends this prophet to them. And he doesn't promise, it strikes me, it's not like the prophet says, hey, you guys need to repent, and God's going to send a deliverer, right? He does not promise that God will deliver the nation, does he? 
But God, in his grace, decides to do so. He raises up yet another judge, yet another deliverer. This time, the most unlikely heroes, this deliverer, if you will, by the name of Gideon. So let's focus our efforts now, starting in verse 11, with Gideon's argument, right? We've seen Israel's action. We've seen God's admonition of his unfaithfulness. Focus our efforts on Gideon as he wrestles with God's call to be the deliverer of God. Even to verse 11, uh, we find our hero in really the most unlikely of places. We find a place that you don't find heroes doing very unheroic things. Let's take a look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak to Joash, the where his Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. First thing that we're told, this introduction to this great hero, so to speak, this unlikely hero, the first thing that we're told about him is that he is beating out wheat, remember, in a wine press, right? He's beating out wheat in a wine press. See, this like us as very odd. This reveals to us that Gideon, like all the rest of God's people, um, are shaking in his sandals. He is terrified of the of the Midianites. See, you wouldn't normally beat out uh, wheat there. You would beat out wheat on the top of a the the chaff and separate it from the wheat. But instead, he is. It's kind of like a dugout area in the ground where maybe uh, these can't see him. The point is this. Is this a natural-born hero that we're looking at? No. This is not some mighty man of God. He's scared, right? So, God has to work with. And this is the man that God chooses. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared, he said, and this is funny. It's meant to be funny, I think. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, are these the actions of a mighty warrior? No. These are the actions of a coward. And yet, the angel of the Lord, who seems to be God himself, God is with you, you mighty warrior. See, this is like Chip Gaines. You know who I'm talking about down in Waco, that guy? This is kind of like Chip Gaines. The Lord is with you, you mighty handyman. Because I'm not a handyman, right? He's calling him something that in reality he's not. But as one commentator says, great truths about Scripture is that when God looks at us, he does not see us for who we are, but for what we can become. And friends, aren't you happy about that? I know I am as well. So you mighty warrior, God is with you. And we begin then with the excuse giving in verse 13. Gideon is going to give us about three objections, three excuses for not following God's call. Verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies. Now you know that when somebody talks to God and they begin by saying, well, well, excuse what I'm about to say. Pardon me. You know, it's not good. Gideon replied, but if... But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors 
they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now Gideon says, The Lord has abandoned us and given us into Midian's hands. The Lord has abandoned and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I? So let's take a look at the first excuse here that, that Gideon gives. The first excuse is that he blames God. He says, God, this is all you The situation that, that you're It's all your fault, right? Now, what did the angel said to him? And here Gideon questions that. He questions, is God really with us? Is he really with his covenant people? God is with us. Why are we living in fear? What about all those miracles? I heard about what God did from our ancestors, but I haven't seen the of the Why are we in this situation? And what is his... Did you notice that? The Lord has abandoned. Did you see that? The Lord has abandoned us, Gideon concludes. Now let me ask a question. Is that true? Is that the truth of the situation? Who has abandoned who? Did God abandon people? Did they abandon him? Yes, absolutely. He has it all that we're in. God, it's your fault. When in reality, who their fault. So, fellow followers of Christ, I wonder if, if we can use this excuse as well. A situation that you currently find, maybe you will find yourself in. Maybe you're saying like Gideon, but the Lord is with us. Why has this happened? When in reality, the situation you are in is because of your own sin. Choice financial mess and you're saying to God, God, why have you allowed me to be in in reality? You don't you debt. You're living above your means. And you say, God, why like Gideon. Your marriage, it's it's in strain. And you're saying to God, you abandoned my this marriage? Have you abandoned us? You're un you are choice by choice abandoning your own this card too can't we like Gideon your fault when in reality likely we have part to play in our situation now the second excuse is going to sound very familiar as as we look at verse 15 it's going to sound like like Moses you may remember Moses and the excuse he gave to God well, this is kind of like it, starting in verse 15, where Gideon says, God, I simply can't do what you're calling me to do. Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. I save Israel. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none Alive. See, what's, 
what's Gideon's second excuse here? His first was like, this is, this is all your fault. This situation we're in is because of you. And then he says, wait, you want me to do what some of the judges before? You want me to do it? Real. And what does he point to? Notice what he talks about. He talks about his background, right? He talks about his lineage. He claims that he is the weakest tribe in all. And then he says, not only is my tribe the weakest tribe, but my family, my clan within that tribe is the weakest. It's kind of like he, like days when Scotty said to Captain Kurt, what would he often say? I can't do it, Captain, right? I don't have the, you know, power. Man, you guys aren't Star Trek? Go watch Star Trek, okay? I can't do it, Captain. I don't have the power. This is what Gideon is saying. He's saying, I just can't do what you're calling me to do. Look at my lineage. I'm not significant. See, what he's looking for was, was natural signs of leadership. He was like, well, naturally, leaders come from important tribes. And naturally, leaders come from strong. And I'm none of that. And you're going to win. But friends, I wonder. I wonder what God might be asking you to do for his people. Like he was people. And you are responding in a similar fashion. You're saying, I can't do that. Maybe, since we've been talking about mission trips this morning, maybe your first response was, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can go to Louisiana. I don't, I don't think I can go to North Carolina. I certainly can't go to New York. God, I can't do that. Really? Friends, if God is calling, he will enable you to do it. Maybe you're saying, God, I, I can't be regular here at church on Sunday mornings. We're so busy things going on. I I just can't do that. Really? You can't do that? Or you won't do that? Maybe it's calling. I really need to have an ongoing fellowship with him in prayer or in the word or in meditation. But you're saying, God, I just can't do that. I don't have time. I I can't do that. Maybe it's maybe it's choosing a lifestyle that is more conducive for being generous, both to the local church. You know, God's calling you to pare down some of your commitments so you can be more involved in ministry or in the youth group or in the local church. And God, I can't do that. What will the coach say? What will my say? Friends, maybe God is calling you to do just that. Or are you like Gideon? I can't do that. Well, there's a final excuse, and it's found in verse 17. Starting verse 17 and running through verse 24, the third excuse that Gideon gives um, is one that demonstrates his lack of faith and trust in God. He says, God, I need proof. I need evidence. Verse 17, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I... Come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, paired a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket in its broth and a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread. 
place them on this rock and pour out the broth. Unusual. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flamed from the rock, the meat and bread. And the angel of the Lord appeared. Verse 22. Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord. He exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. That's assuring, isn't it? Verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Orpha of the Abizarites. You know, my, uh, my mother-in-law uh, is, is a wonderful lady and I, and I love her a ton. And she, one of the things that she's really into is reading uh, books about various diets and health uh, health philosophies. A year or two, she kind of has a new book that she's reading, and I get to, to hear all about it. And it's, it's pretty interesting. It's filled with stories of, of how this philosophy or that philosophy or this doctor or that doctor healed various illnesses or sicknesses simply through the particular diet. Now, I have to confess to you something now about uh, my tendency. On these sort of things, I tend to be kind of a skeptic, right? I, I tend to be not uh, fully willing to just into something uh, because there's some look. And so I would typically say, hey, this is interesting and it's good, but this is what I'll say. I'll say, I need more evidence. I'll say, I need more proof. Give me something more than this book. You know, Gideon was kind of like that with, with God. But there's one small difference. He was demanding proof not from some human doctor or author, he would And so we return to the story. We get a sense here that Gideon, I don't think he fully realized who he was talking to quite. He, he realized that this is the angel of the Lord. This indeed is, is God himself. Hammered that home, right? And so the section ends with Gideon doing something we see people in the Old Testament doing a lot. They build an altar, and they built an an altar to commemorate it. It's called uh, Yahweh Shalom, or the Lord is Peace. And it was a memorial. I I believe Gideon here in in this moment renewed his faith in the Lord. And he do God's will. Now, here in a second, we're going to see, if you were to keep reading, that he demands even more evidence. He wants even more proof. But let's close with this thought here, this final excuse. I wonder if there are times his Bible on a matter, like Gideon had, he had clear instructions that we, like him, are simply unwilling to obey because we don't want to do what God wants. And so Gideon, he says, I, I just want a second opinion. I need some more proof. I need some more evidence. Friends, I wonder if when you hear a word from the Lord through his Bible, that if you really true, you hear it preached, you hear it read in your devotion, you hear it on the radio, and you're like, huh, I think I need some more evidence. I, I think I, know, I need to know what so-and-so said. This really is a good idea, even though it's a clear word from the Lord.
friends, vision from the word, do we immediately, intuitively seek an alternation? That can't be true. Could God really mean that? Does he really want me? Is that, is that to the word of God? So as we close, I just want to point out something that I've really not commented on along the way because I've saved the end here. I think what we see here in these three excuses with Gideon that he gives, we see the patience of God here, do we not? I mean, we see God being patient and gracious. Gideon has given reading, and God each time has responded by affirming his call. He even gave Gideon the sign that he requested, and he would do it. I just want us to see, um, because it's so easy for us to maybe beat ourselves up. I'm hoping that we see ourselves in these characters, and that we see their excuses on our own lips. Um, and, And I want us to do that, and yet God is so patient with us. He is so patient when we give him excuses. He is kind. He encourages. He responds so often more than we deserve. And so let's leave this place knowing that God is gracious to us in our excuse giving. And he often responds so patiently, moving us, pushing us towards obedience. Maybe today like Gideon, you're saying to God, God, the situation that I'm in is for Or maybe you're saying, God, I know what you want me to do for your people. I just can't do it. Or maybe you're saying about something God has clearly revealed in his word, I need more proof. So may God do with you and with us as he did with Vivian, moving us from fear to faith, moving us from timidity to trust, and from rationalization to reverent obedience. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your help this morning. It is such a privilege.